Well, welcome back to Sybil Creek Conversations. My name is Wyatt Marchant, and I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. We were just commenting before we went on the air that I don't think I've ever seen you when you're not wearing a hat. Yep. Yeah, this is the first time that anybody who watches the podcast and doesn't personally know me will see my hair. Yes, I, I think it's maybe one of the first times I've ever seen it, and I've known you for a couple <laughs> of years. You've known me for a lot of years. You've seen me without it, but it's definitely been about two years since you saw it last. <laughs> yeah. So is this part of, you know, just becoming, you know, now that you're a married man and stuff, you're changing your look? You know, I actually still like the hat look, but... Yeah. I got a haircut, and I wanted a haircut that was short enough that I could wake up and not do anything to it. Yeah. And here it is. I like those. And then I realized, like I was saying before, too, that my hair was going to start thinning, and because I have my bill kind of more bent, yeah. this, this, these, these <laughs> things start to get increased. Oh, that comes with being married. <clears throat> uh, yeah. <laughs> Tell you what. Um, but, but, yeah, so decided to just cut it and... And maybe look a little bit older at the same time. There you go. And I, I'm actually thinking you look younger. Yeah, that's. I think so too. Yeah. The hat I liked it made, and and I also trimmed my beard up, oh, which I also don't man. like. All sorts of grooming going on. Yeah, well, that's what weddings do to you. I was in a wedding; wasn't my own. Already happened. <laughs> you were in a friend's wedding this weekend, and I was. You got to. Uh, so you said there were two best men. Yeah. How'd that work? Yeah, so really it just was kind of a uh, a label thing. Uh-huh. Um, he didn't want to have to choose, so he just chose both of us. I was first in line. He also said that if he had to choose, it would have been me. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. That's out but, on the uh, air now. But the other guy was really, really impactful in, like, them meeting. My, la- my, oh. my friend and his now wife meeting and them growing together as a couple, whereas I wasn't because I wasn't at UT. Yeah, okay. And so, um, but yeah. So I was still first in line. I had the rings, all that good stuff. Oh man, yeah, you were carrying the ball. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> did it? Did a good speech. Oh, you the did the whole thing at the reception. Uh huh. A toast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A toast made his mom cry. That was the goal. Hey, there you go. Yeah. So Winning. so it went well. Went well for me, and they also had a beautiful wedding for themselves because that's what this actually was about. Yeah. Not myself. I was also at a wedding this weekend. I was officiating a destination wedding in mm-hmm. Colorado Springs, Colorado, and it was just wonderful. It was such an ideal setting, and I I remember at the reception, um, sitting back and just sort of watching the room, and the dance floor was hopping, and they had a great band, and then all these families these two families everybody mingling throughout the room and i just thought ah i like this families together enjoying these moments and um whatever drama there might be you weren't aware of it and it was really a kind of a really nice picture of the best things of family and marriage and all that yeah the receptions are by far my favorite time that's like where i thrive because i'm just making friends left and right having a great time yeah yeah those are those are good times, good times indeed. So let me ask you a question: uh, Do you dance at the reception? <clears throat> I dance to the songs that you have to dance with someone to. Oh, okay. So Allie and I dance to like the slower songs or the songs that you actually have to partner with. I don't dance the ones where you just move sporadically. It's sporadically. I don't have that gene. Yeah, I I don't either. I don't dance. Not because I wouldn't like to dance or I have any kind of, you know, religious beliefs about dance. 
I would love to be able to dance. I have no rhythm. Mm. And so it's just plain awkward for me. And uh, I've tried. I've took dance lessons with my wife and just I'm kind of hopeless. But I love to watch people dance. Uh, it's fun to watch 20-somethings. They all seem to know how to do it. And so when the the band starts playing a certain song, they all gather around in a circle and one of them goes in the middle. I'm just like, that's so cool. It's it's yeah. fun to watch. Yeah. See, mine's not even a rhythm thing, I don't think. Um, mine's just, I don't, li- I don't like it, I guess. Uh, I also guess I wish that I could, but <laughs> I get outside myself and, I, and then I'm like looking at myself and I'm like, you look so stupid, Wyatt. <laughs> you need to stop doing that right there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, can't do it. But I'm also, though I am in the age group that should be able to, right? I'm 40 in my head, <laughs> and so it just skipped me, right? regardless of how young I am. So um, a year ago, around the same time, I did a wedding, another destination wedding, in another city in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And um, during the reception, the DJ asked all couples in the room, there was maybe 200 people there for the reception. Everybody that was a couple come to the dance floor. So naturally, my wife and I, we go up to the dance floor. And I'm thinking, well, there's 100 other people here on the dance floor. Nobody's going to notice me. And like we were dancing as partners so I could cover up my complete inability. Well, the DJ starts eliminating people. If you've been married for three years or less, please leave the dance floor. And so little by little, it's becoming fewer and fewer couples on the dance floor. It comes down to just the last two couples, one other couple and me and Charlotte. (laughs) And we're dancing. And I am mortified because now everybody in the entire reception is standing on the outskirts of the dance floor watching the four of us. And I'm just like dying a thousand deaths because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Fortunately, we were not the oldest married couple in the room. I was going to say, there had to be somebody. There else. was one other couple that had been married a few years more than we had. So there was two things. One, I was mortified at the fact that I was dancing in front of all these people, quote unquote, dancing. Secondly, I was kind of taken by the fact that how do we get to be this old that we're now like one of the last two couples on the dance floor? So. I'm kind of surprised by that too, because like we did the same thing at ours, and but I mean we have some old people in our family that are still married. Yeah, old Germans. So I guess they just last longer these days. Those days, I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah, so I would love to be able to dance. I just really don't have it. But uh, well, it's all right. Good. Everybody's it's, got their thing. That ex- just ain't yours. Exactly. But it's not mine either. Yeah. So it's all right. Well, moving on to today's topic, um, kind of, I guess, kind of related to the last two episodes. But um, today we wanted to, it, I wanted to talk about kind of this question of what hills should Christians die on, which is obviously it's a saying, but um, the idea is that increasingly so. Christians are asked to compromise on beliefs that they've held for, well, thousands of years. Um, But all of a sudden now we know better than everybody else. And so Christians are being asked to compromise, to change, to be more relaxed 
um, or to just outright uh, negate beliefs that we had for a long time. And so it's kind of put a lot of people into this place of, okay, well, what do I compromise? What don't I compromise? How do I determine uh, where to draw the line? Mm-hmm. And so I guess we'll just start th- start kind of there. It In the society that we live in, is it ever okay to compromise on our beliefs and, and then this might, you might want to answer this first. How do we actually determine what to compromise? What can we can be flexible on um, and what we can't be flexible on? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think you're right. It is becoming more and more relevant to the discussion of how do Christians navigate the world in which they live? Because that, that world in which they live comes down to really practical um dimensions of their life it's where they work it's where they go to school it's the neighborhoods that they live in it's the friends that they run around with it's you know the country clubs they're a part of um it's the families that you know the extended families that they're connected to and um the more determined a christ follower is to live their faith uh they're they're meeting more and more challenges in all of those arenas and trying to decide, you know, to what extent do I hold the line or what hill am I willing to die on? Um, so I think it is, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think the place I would start is that what's that game? Is it Jenga? Where they mm-hmm. have the wooden blocks? Yeah. Yeah, Jenga. So you have these wooden blocks and you build a tower. You stack them on top of each other and build this tall tower. And then the objective of the game is the contestants take turns at removing a block with the hope that the tower remains standing. So really what we're talking about is, in a sense, a doctrinal or theological Jenga. What are are some of the beliefs that you could remove from the tower without it collapsing? And so if if you took every... A belief every nuance of the Christian faith and each one of each one was a block and you built this you know tower are there some that you could pull out of the tower and the tower wouldn't collapse I think those are the kinds of um, beliefs that maybe there's some latitude on exactly how strongly you hold to them or as you said, uh, that you would be willing to quote-unquote compromise on. We can discuss what compromise means. Um, And then there's some, I think, it didn't matter um, where they were in the tower. If you pulled them out, the tower collapses. And probably in a very vivid sense, building the Jenga tower, there's the four on the bottom, and then everything rises from there. So they're foundational. And I just think that there's... There are a couple of um, Christian beliefs or doctrinal beliefs of evangelical Christianity that they're foundational. They're fundamental to the whole tower. And if you you remove any of them or any of what that block represents, the whole tower is coming down. It doesn't matter how important all the other ones might be. You mess with those four bottom ones and the tower collapses. So I, I think 
probably the objective for a you know a sincere follower of Christ, a committed Christian, is to really have an understanding of what are those foundational blocks that you're going to hold to, that your belief is solid in, that your understanding is solid, so that you'd be willing to defend it, you'd be willing to stand up for it, you'd be willing to speak out against it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, what hill would a Christian die on? There really are, there's a sense to deciding which beliefs am I willing to die for, like in a literal sense. If somebody was going to, and this is kind of a harsh picture, if someone's going to put a gun to my head and say, uh, deny this, as a Christian, I have to decide which, which, which of my beliefs am I going to say no? I'm I'm not going to recant where I stand on, on that, that belief or those beliefs and be willing to, to die for them. So I think, um, I think there are several foundational or fundamental beliefs that are, um, they're, they can't be compromised. Because if you, if you take anything away from you, those four or five beliefs, the whole tower falls down. Yeah. Other ones, there's just a sort of latitude in how the, you know, how the scriptures are interpreted in regards to a particular topic or how the church has chosen to express a certain dimension of um, an understanding of the scriptures. I think there's probably some flexibility. I'm not necessarily saying that I, I would give them up. I'm just saying that we could agree to disagree. Um, but I'm not willing to part company over because of how, um, how certain topics might yeah. have different interpretations. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So um, I got to thinking after you sent me the outline and I started trying to put my thoughts around my answers. Um, I got thinking about the Jenga tower, if we were talking about doctrinal beliefs, and what would be the four that would be the base, mm. the foundation? And again, I, I could be wrong, but in my mind, the four were um, the person in the nature of God. Who is he and what he's like um, from a, an understanding of Scripture? So I think that's non-negotiable because once you start messing with an understanding of the true person and nature of God, everything collapses. Um, the second is uh, the person and nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Um, your understanding of that is critical to the whole equation. And if you go taking things away, then things start collapsing. Uh, for instance, um, I don't think the deity of Jesus is negotiable. Mm. Because if you take away his divinity or his deity then there's so many other dimensions of who Jesus is and what he did that, that just don't work. I got into a ongoing argument with a Jehovah's Witness about that. Yeah. yeah. He's awesome. His name is Larry. He's like almost 80. He'd yeah. come over. But yeah, yeah, they don't believe. Yeah, and so you have this very you know, separate understanding of who Jesus is, and you have to decide who he is. And, and what I'm saying is if you take any 
part of that historical Christian understanding of Jesus away, then lots of other things just collapse, salvation yeah. and redemption and all that. Um, I think the third one is uh, the authority and nature of the scriptures as God's eternal, inerrant revelation to mankind. And if, again, take anything away from the nature of the scriptures and now suddenly everything immediately collapses because all that we know about God and all that we know about Jesus in a contemporary society, all we know about God and Jesus is revealed in the pages of the scriptures. Now, the Bible tells us you can learn some things about God from nature, but you're not going to learn the specifics. Yeah. Right? Um, The Bible provides us the specifics about the nature of God in Jesus. And if you take anything away from the authority of Scripture and its influence on our understanding of those things, then, again, you just open up the door to all sorts of um, chaos in, in beliefs. And it provides a standard by which we can check uh, revelation. By. Yeah. Like if he reveals something to us, either by the Holy Spirit, but even at that point you're saved because you can't have the Holy Spirit unless you've been saved. But it's he can reveal something to individuals, but that still has to be in line yeah. with Scripture. Has to be cons- he's never going to reveal something inconsistent with Correct. what's already been revealed in the Scriptures. And then the fourth one, I was like, well... I guess people could go different ways on what the fourth one might be. Um, for the fourth one for me is um, the the nature of the gospel, and and that encompasses everything from grace and mercy and faith and redemption and propitiation and all of the all of that is attached to the cross, the work of Jesus and His resurrection. And if you take anything of that away, historical Christianity collapses and so um those to me would be like the ultimate non-negotiables in my mind again if someone put a gun to my head and said you know deny either those four if i'm going to live according to conscience and conviction i'd have to say i can't Mm. now there's lots of other things stacked in that tower and I'm not saying any of them are less important than those four because they're, they're all connected. It's all organic. But I think there's plenty of historical um, uh, data. There's plenty of um, uh, hermeneutical data, like how a person goes about studying the scriptures, that would would leave room for some flexibility, not necessarily that I give it up and, re, and you know, deny it, but I, I, I'll have to just be agreeable to be disagreeable with someone. And that's things like communion and baptism and women in ministry and the spiritual gifts and, you know, a host of things that get a lot of traffic these days. And, and there's, like I always explain it, you could put... Um, you could put 50 theolo- theological scholars at a table and they're all sincere followers of Jesus Christ, authentic Christians. Um, let's imagine that all 50 of them are equally devoted to the proper interpretation of Scripture and they believe in the high authority of Scripture and the place of the Holy Spirit in an understanding of it. And you could get 30 different interpretations of 
what does the Bible have to say about women in ministry or women, a woman being a pastor? And, and there'll be all sorts of different historical and grammatical and contextual, you know, discussions and ingredients. And so I, I'm just answering because you asked me, um, I find that there's some flexibility in those sorts of doctrinal uh, understandings. Um, same with, you know, I grew up in a setting where, you know, communion had to be served in a certain place, at a certain date, day of the week, by a certain group of people, in a certain way. And the truth of the matter is the Bible doesn't give us any details about most any of that. And so to to die on a hill about how communion's supposed to be served or when, I just find that somewhat ridiculous. Mm. It's... It's negotiable in the sense of, well, it's okay. You serve it your way, your day. I'll serve it my way, my day, that kind of thing. Um, But when it comes to the person of God, the person of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, and the essence of the gospel, I I just don't, don't think there's room to compromise because so much rides on those four things. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And <clears throat> I guess I'm pretty in line with your list, and, and I'm not just nitpicking. The only one is, I mean, the gospel. On the fourth one, I was kind of in between, and I was like, What were uh, you between? I was in between, but the gospel kind of encapsulates this, but the nature of man. And and in and that would encapsulate the depravity of sin, or depravity caused by sin. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the gospel, of course, encapsulates. Well, it's not the it's not the good news unless there's some bad news. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah like so, like you said, you have the you have the foundation, and I'm just using the Jenga yeah. illustration. It doesn't have to be only four. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. well, let's build a tower with six sides or eight <laughs> sides. Um, but yeah, so there's other ones in the stack, and some of them, by virtue of importance and weight, would be closer to the bottom. Um, and yeah, so what the scriptures teach us about the truth of mankind is certainly um, a, a, an important historical belief. And um, I'm not going to ever, I'm not ever going to back away from the idea that we are depraved and sin is an issue and it must be remedied if we hope to have a relationship with the living holy God and spend eternity with him in heaven. I, I have to deal with the sin thing. Yeah, and that also could have been on my mind just because it's kind of of the cultural moment. And, uh, for instance, the the He Gets Us campaign that came up on the yeah. Super Bowl, right? Yeah. It's- we go to their website, and you look for, like, the words sin or the reason that Jesus is cool, which is how they talk about him, essentially. <laughs> right. It's like nothing about redemption, being separated from God, nothing about any of that. A lot of churches don't have any of that. <laughs> Yeah, and so it's like, well, of course that makes sense because to say that somebody is sinful is a big no-no. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I agree, and and I think that like, and maybe I'm wrong, but in some in some ways these like non-negotiables are kind of like uh, they're called I think major doctrines, uh-huh. or they're the closed hands, which just means like they're so foundational that they set the tone, they they determine all the ones underneath them, and or or they they influence all the ones underneath yeah. them. Um, and then the minor doctrines or the open hand ones are kind of those ones that have more flexibility and <clears throat> if changed 
they don't change a whole bunch of other stuff. So right. yeah, and so so if pulled out of the Jenga tower, they don't cause it all to fall down. Right. Like so, another one that tends to be, depending on what's there, some people hold like staunchly to them. I see some flexibility is is in the discussion of prophecy. And so, you, you again, you get those 50 scholars around the table and they're all going to have slightly different perspectives on how you interpret, you know, the, the prophetic timeline and how you understand this passage in the book of Revelation or this prophecy in the mm. book of Daniel. And they're all good people and they all have this huge value for Scripture. They just interpret subtle nuances of prophetic literature in slightly different ways and and some people are like so you have like in that that whole discussion you have all millennial or pre-millennial or post-millennial these discussions about the return of christ and the the kingdom that he sets up and when does that happen pre-tribulation rapture post-tribulation rapture those those, and granted i've been in the circles they're very passionate discussions but at the end of the day there's enough historical, grammatical, contextual um, differences that I'm not willing to I'm not willing to die on that hill about does does the tribulation happen before or after this? I'm just I mean I have my beliefs, sure, but I'm I'm not going to go to the wall for that particular kind of issue, and I think. If you take the, and we'll just by illustrate, if you take the amillennial, you know, interpretation of prophecy out of the Jenga tower, it's still going to stand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the yeah. same, and I could say in, in defense, I could pull out the pre-tribulational rapture block and the tower is still going to stand. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's those kinds of topics and you're referring them, uh, referring to them as open hand, meaning I'm f- I'm willing to let this one be open for interpretation and discussion. Yeah, yeah, discussion. Yeah, and closed hand is saying no. I'm fixed on my understanding and my conviction about these truths, and so I'm not negotiating those. I'm not. They're not out for. Uh, we can discuss them, of course, but I'm not giving up where I've arrived on that particular understanding. This is a slight due to her, but it's a good example of <clears throat> how easy it is to come to different conclusions mm. about things. Uh, I was having a discussion with two friends, and, I, and, and we got into a discussion that Genesis, I think it's 3.16, became relevant. It's right at the end of the curse, and he's talking to Eve. Um, and I had always read this verse as saying, and your desire will be contrary to that of your husband or be contrary to your husband or against your husband. I've always read it that way, but I realize that I've almost always read that reading ESV. If you read almost any other translation, it says your desire will be for your husband. And I was like, wow, that really changes things. (laughs) And, and my two other friends, they thought the exact opposite. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? Right. This is, of course it says this. And so that led us down. I broke out all my commentaries, all my like stuff about it. And turns out, contrary is a better interpretation of the word, but like, or against. Yeah. Um, 
But like that is such an easy way that then your understanding of of I guess uh, the doctrine or the relationship that men and women have have towards each other in the context of marriage uh, that can completely be different. Yeah. Off of just one word. Yeah. In one in one sentence. Um, just yeah. as an example, it was really interesting. It blew my mind. Yeah. And and that's you see that all across the board from baptism to communion to gifts to women in ministry to prophecy. It's those little subtle nuances of how does Paul use this word in this context at this time, you know, and then how we 2,000 years later, how have we've learned to interpret it and what does the English Standard Version of the Bible render it and what does the New American Standard render it and what did the King James render it and you find out that all three of those different based on the scholars who were doing the work. And so those sorts of little subtle nuances have to play, come to play or have come to bear on some truths and some doctrines of the scripture. But none of that really, none of those same instances ever dramatically alter the identity and the nature of God. Yeah. And Jesus and scripture and the gospel. So um, what, what's that quote? Uh, in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty in all things, charity. And so um, what it's a great quote. It's saying, you know, Christians ought to be united around those things that are essential doctrines. That would be that four or five or six at the bottom of the Jenga tower because they're foundational. Then there's the non-essentials. Really, at the end of the day, the titles that you give to women in, in church and the roles that they play, and are, did all the gifts cease? Are they still active today in the local church? Or is it pre-trib, post-trib? At the end of the day, we may have disagreements about that. We have maybe differences about that, but there's liberty. There's there's you know, there's flexibility in those sorts of things because they don't compromise the the essence of our faith. And then in all of it, it there should just be charity. And so um, that you know, there's a difference between convictions and opinions. Mm. And they're both they're both an expression of belief. You have a belief about something, you you have an opinion on it. I think the depth of belief that comes with a conviction represents um, a much greater depth of research and weighing out the the matter and coming to a resolve about it that's different than an opinion I might have. And so what we have to recognize is that a lot of Christians get wrapped around discussions that are really just opinions. And the fact that we part company over, say, you know, you're an idiot and I can't hang out with you or I can't have fellowship with you, it's just ridiculous. I don't think that that represents the true nature of, of differences on things that are negotiable. Yeah, and, and the way that I almost try to conceptualize it, it's like, hey, if... Say the persecution on Christians um, gets worse. And now there's a lot of people. This is part of one of the concerns that you had on yeah. the past podcast. A lot of people will be shake their head and be like, ah, y'all are being alarmist or whatever. But, um, well, you can keep doing that. 
you can keep thinking that if you want to, I suppose. But um, <clears throat> let's say it gets worse. Who am I going to be willing to like lock arms with uh, if if I had to if I was backed up against a wall? Increasingly right. so. Who am I going to be willing to lock arms with? And um, that's the way that I kind of try to conceptualize. Well, yeah, we disagree about this, but at the end of the day, like this is my brother in Christ. Mm-hmm. That kind of, and, and I know that he's solid on those on those things. Right. And so, yeah, that's just the way that I've been trying to think about it. So when it comes down to kind of being flexible, I guess if you have a systematic understanding of the Bible, is there, is there, let me actually, let me actually ask it this way. In today, what are some things that you see as being, uh, that Christians are being asked to compromise or be flexible on? That wasn't a question on the sheet, so kind of on the no, spot. This is live. I'll tell you what. Live radio. Um, yeah, if, if we take kind of the contemporary discussions, there's a huge discussion about Christians relinquishing how tightly they hold to an understanding of um, sex before marriage and marriage between men and women. mm those are huge discussions that the church is being pulled in to taking a position on. And what we're seeing is in the attempt to be, you know, accommodating and um, inclusive and to be quote unquote loving is that while we have to make allowances because society has changed and culture has changed and now it's, it's morally acceptable for gay marriage, uh, or people living together and never being married. Well, not if I go back to one of the foundational beliefs of my Jenga tower has to do with the proper interpretation of Scripture. And because I have um, a deep conviction on an understanding of the authority of Scripture, I go to Scripture and ask myself the question, what does God teach us about marriage? And what does God teach us about sexual intimacy and the fact of the matter is he has purpose for it and design and order something I just talked about at church. Um, and there are, there are very clear boundaries that God's established for both marriage and for uh, human sexuality. And it doesn't matter how popular or how, um, how, how in the majority the opinion and perspective is on those two topics, I still have the abiding truth of God's word that I'm responsible to. And so I'm seeing Christians, and I, I see it in well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians all the time. And here's, here's usually how it goes down, is they have, it's, um, you got these parents who are deeply devoted to Christ, and they serve their church, and they are committed to you know living their life as followers of Christ. And then one of their children comes out and says, "I'm gay," or you know, like um, their their mom leaves their dad and gets married to another woman. And suddenly, these Christians are having to, they're scrambling and they're backpedaling. They're going, "Well, I I think." You know, they're in love and they should be allowed and God would want that. And I see it all the time. Christians compromising on some foundational truths. And I don't think that God's 
perspective on marriage and sexuality is an opinion. I, I think it is clearly established in the scriptures of what the design is. And so I have a responsibility as a pastor, and I would hope as then as a follower of Christ, that I can be loving and kind, but I can't affirm and applaud that as a lifestyle. And I, I know it's incredibly unpopular um, because it's such a popular dimension of contemporary society, but that's that's one that comes to mind. It's amazing how quickly in your attempt to both justify and caudral either yourself or someone you know, you become a heretic, mm. right? Yeah. Just all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to toss out this. And, and, and to be honest, I think, because I've had conversations with friends about this, and their reasonings aren't very deep for doing so. Like, it is, it is just a justification thing. Uh, and that, that part's very evident. But the reasons not to, they're unaware of. So they don't understand why. For instance, it can, it can seem arbitrary to some if they don't know any better. They haven't done any, like, you know, research into, why, okay, well, why should marriage just between, be between a man and a woman? Right. Well, because that implica- has implications on how you raise children, has implications on sex and intimacy, has implications on the difference between man and woman in general, which is huge. Like, I think that um, gay marriage was a huge door that was opened up that has now allowed for the transgender confusion. Mm-hmm. Because if there are no fundamental differences between men and women in marriage, well... Anything goes. Anything goes. Yeah. And so it's just all of these different doors that seemed arbitrary at first, but it's just because people didn't understand the yeah. deep connections Yeah, uh, and, that, that And had. we still don't understand the deep connections because the more normalized that the whole trans lifestyle becomes, it's just going to open more and more doors for more aberrant expressions of sexual behavior. Yeah. And so, I, you it, know, 30 years from now we'll be having completely different discussions like how in the world did we get here? And you and I have talked on offline about where some of those doors, doors lead down the road. But um, yeah, you're exactly right. I don't think, I don't think everybody, and I'm not saying I do, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think we always understand the implications to the implications. Yeah. And when, once I, once I try to um, abdicate the authority of the scriptures to say, oh, well, God, he's a God of love and he wants people to be in love and enjoy life together. So, yeah, this is acceptable. And, and we think, oh, we're gaining ground here. We, we allowed this. And we're like, you just opened a Pandora's box to all sorts of permissiveness that as society becomes more and more numb, to any sort of conscience about these things, then suddenly anything and everything, suddenly, meaning over time, anything and everything will be permissible. And I think that's the wisdom of God's word, is that it's a fixed anchor, uh, it's an eternal truth. And God being who he is, he understands all the doors that could open if you ignore it. And, and, at the end of the day, you got this loving heavenly father who's trying to protect his children from the harm that they can do to themselves or that others can do to them because they stray too far away from the truth. And um, 
you know, I think, I think as, as a pastor and maybe just my unique wiring, I'm very sensitive or very alert to the questions of what's the next door set of doors that starts opening. And so when I feel squeezed or I feel pushed by somebody who wants me to say something another way or to stop saying something, um, I, I, I refuse to, not because I'm so uh, difficult or not because I'm trying, not because I'm stubborn, it's because I'm trying to look the long-term pic- picture of what I believe the scriptures are, are revealing. And then I go, if I give ground here, then I have to give ground there and I have to give ground there. And, and pretty soon I stand for nothing. And all because I want you to like me or all because I want you to stay at our church or all because I you know, want you to continue to give to us. No, I, I don't want to be that kind of person because I, I have to answer to a holy God for my stewardship of the truth. And I'm not saying I understand all truth. I'm just saying I have to be a steward of what I believe to be my best understanding of things. And my best understanding of things is not to give way to a proper improper interpretation of scripture just to provide permission for people to live outside of God's design. Well, and the foolishness there is that just regardless of what you say doesn't it's not going to change what God has said on the matter. Yeah. Yeah, so um I had a situation like this recently where I said something in a message um a person came to me after the sermon and like read me the right act about how I was judgmental and wasn't kind or gracious. Um, it had nothing to do with how I presented it, it's what I had said. And we, you know, we kind of did the back and forth. I was trying to explain where I was coming from and they weren't having it. And I just had to say to this, you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I believe. What really matters is what you think and what you believe because there's going to come a day that you stand before a holy, righteous God and you give an account for what you decided, what you believed, what you interpreted the scriptures to say. And at the end of the day, it won't matter what in the world I thought. And you're not going to be able to say, well, Paul Wilson said... Guys, are gonna go, Paul. Who? <laughs> I'll get to him. I'm only in the R's right now. We'll get to <laughs> yeah, the we'll W's. We'll get to him. He'll get his due. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take matters up with him when I get to him. But I'm talking about you right now. You had the same scriptures. All I'm asking: Did you put the kind of time, the study, the depth of meditation, and you know, prayerful reflection on? the whole counsel that I provided you in the scriptures for you to come to the conclusion that you did about X, Y, or Z. And I know the instance that you're talking about, and I know that it was also, you, you read a scripture. Yeah. It wasn't even just an opinion. Yeah. It wasn't Paul just doing a Wyatt and going off track, <laughs> just going off. Doing a Wyatt. Yeah. I might have to start using that. I'll tell you what. I'm just doing a Wyatt right now. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, everybody. This is about to get nasty. Yeah, so... And I really believe that. I mean, I'm being, I'm not trying to be, you know, snarky when I say that. I, 
at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I believe. Each and every person has to decide what they're going to believe based on their study or their refusal to study. They're going to stand before God and going to give an account and they have to, have to, you know, take the risk. Something that I think that is really important to note, because I think that it's one of, it's probably the top um, modern day, I might call it a heresy, um, but it's, you kept on saying you're going to stand before a holy and righteous God. God, God is a, it's a holy God. Yeah. Well, if people can notice that you didn't say you're going to stand before only a loving God, he's also that. Yeah. But the inflation of God's love over his holiness and his righteousness, oh, yeah. that today, that's what leads to, well, God's loving. Like he, of yeah. course he's going to want that person. Like they aren't doing anything wrong. They're not, they're not hurting anybody. Yeah. Um, that is huge. And it can lead to all, because essentially it's like, uh, it's like, it's like the parents who love their kids so much, they don't discipline them. And then everyone else hates their kids. <laughs> That's the worst thing you can yeah. do for your kid because he's screaming in the restaurant. Everybody next to him is wanting to rip their dang head off. <laughs> and their kid grows up to be an entitled, selfish, in undisciplined, <laughs> yeah. uh, self-absorbed child. Yeah. And that's going to show up in heaven too, except that that child's going to be 56 and 70, thinking that somehow they're entitled. They'll be kicking and screaming. All yeah, the way you're to you're exactly else. right. Um, the whole, you know, character trait of God's love is so elevated right now, and they use it for you know moral sake, uh, moral discussions, and ethical discussions, and justice discussions, and they forget that that love is balanced with truth, and and righteousness, and God's sense of justice, and um, they're just lots of people are going to be very surprised when their woke ideology on all those things um, doesn't stand in the face of a holy righteous God. Last night I gave uh, an intro to Proverbs to the high school students. Oh yeah, and I told them that if they come, if they approach the Book of Proverbs, uh thinking that they already know everything, they're going to gain nothing from it, and that the next eight weeks are going to be a complete waste of time. Oh, you're doing eight weeks? Well, I'm not doing it. Oh. I was just, I was just introing it. Okay. I might do one or two coming up. Okay. But <clears throat> I told them, if you come thinking that you know better, you're going to gain nothing from this book, right. and you're going to gain nothing from this eight weeks. And, but if you come saying to yourself, God... You know more than me. You're more wise than me. You're kinder than I am, and you're more loving than I am. Then you you might actually gain quite a bit from this, yeah. Because you're submitting yourself. You're being humble. You're showing humility before a holy God who is better, bigger, more intelligent, stronger, loving, everything than you. Yeah. And that's something that we oftentimes don't think about. We think we're more loving than God is, because we would allow this. I've oh, there's this one huge church pastor. I mean. He's very heretical, but he he says, well, look, if, if it were up to me, I'd allow gay marriage. I'd allow all these things, <laughs> but I'm a Christian, and God says no. I'm sorry, and it's like, you're not more loving than God, sir. Yeah. How dare you stand on that stage and call yourself a pastor and say that? Yeah. I read a quote the other day, and again, as I often say, 
this will not be word for word, but I really loved the essence of the quote. It was basically saying, if we somehow believe that we know better than God when it comes to like love and justice, then all we're doing is declaring ourselves to be the idol of our own worship. Mm. I thought that was really good. And you see it a lot these days in society. And it's just sad when you see it in the church. Uh, You see Christians falling for it all the time. So, yeah, I I I think a lot of what the church traffics in is opinions and not necessarily convictions. And, uh, you know, you would be, you, you, you wouldn't be surprised, but I think we'd be surprised if you took, if you took a hundred just average Christians who sit in church every Sunday and you sat them down and gave them a piece of paper and said, write down your top five convictions. You'd be surprised at how ignorant that would be. One would definitely be live, laugh, love. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> it's so sad, but it's probably true. Live, laugh, love. Do what makes you happy. There's a gagging statement. So, yeah, I I think so many Christians their their whole theological grid work is just really opinions that they've collected from books they read or favorite preachers that they have or you know, a friend or, you know, a thing they experienced rather than a conviction that's been wrestled to the ground through thorough research and a resolve of conscience that says, I believe this is to be true and I will not compromise on it. A few Christians could name five of those things. It's so interesting because I'm so the opposite. So I hate being asked... What's your favorite fill-in-the-blank? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite yeah. TV show? I hate those questions. Why? Because I some will come to my head, but I'm like, oh, but I could have forgotten some. <laughs> Did I like this one a lot? I don't know how much I like it than that. Because it's all up to my opinion. But if you were to say, hey, what are, some, what are like the five fundamental things that you believe to be true? I would be able to answer that so much faster and with so much more confidence. Yeah. And so I guess that kind of takes us into the, the last question. I, <clears throat> How can Christians become more courageous or confident in not compromising, not folding, sticking up for what they believe in? Um, I know that we talked a whole, like you talked a whole bunch about, well, you have to come to the conclusion of what you think about this. Uh, a lot of people might hear that and be like, that's a lot of work. Um, I have a job, blah, 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 excuse after excuse. Um, what would you say? What do people need to do? to know what their life stands on? Well, they have to do the work. Oh, dang. <laughs> yeah. They have to read something? They have or to write? read a lot. Think about something? And stuff? listen a lot and think a lot and meditate a lot. I mean, we're talking about your, your convictions. You're talking about your conscience. You're talking about standing before a holy God someday. So... It, it isn't candy. It's not like it's just going to be handed to you. Yeah, Paul's not going to give you the, the all these answers. I'm, I'm going to provide you some 
some bullet points to think about. But even after all the bullet points, you have to decide what you're, what you're going to believe. So, you know, the question, what, what can we do to be more courageous and not compromising fundamental beliefs while still loving people, which I believe is absolutely uh, necessary. And a lot of that has to do with delivery and a lot of that has to do with attitude. Uh, I wrote down a couple of things like you got to know your stuff. You got to be able to defend. So if you're going to um, be more courageous and not compromise, you got to know what you believe and you got to know why you believe it. You got to be able to defend it. You got to be able to discuss it intelligently, not just make stuff up. Uh, not bail out on it easily when somebody pushes up against the hard parts of it. You, you got to know what you believe. Um, I was at a, an event um, a week ago and was watching somebody defend a thesis. And it, it, granted, it was a high school level, so it wasn't like you know, doctoral dissertation. Um, the person did a great job presenting their thesis, and then they had a panel of, I think, three experts. And the, they didn't know whatever, what questions they were going to be asked about their thesis. And I, I'd say the questions were really good. And this isn't, this isn't a critique of the presenter because I thought they did a great job. But they struggled a little bit in answering the questions when it came to defending their thesis. Um, but then I, I think I might have struggled off the top of my head being able to answer some of those questions. So I was really a very admi admiring of the presenter, a teenager. Um, but they struggled. And I feel like in the really serious conversations about important matters of faith, we may not have all the answers, but we better be very clear about what our answers are. We, we need to be able to defend. We need to have some dexterity in how we have the, the conversations about our beliefs. But if your beliefs are established just on, well, I heard Paul say it, or I you know, read this little inspirational quote, or I have an opinion on it, once you're really pushed into a corner on your beliefs, you're, you'll just fold. So, or you'll even be convinced yeah, otherwise. Yeah, and you certainly won't be convincing because no. they, they want to see if, in fact, you can defend. Because um, the minute they see that you can't defend it, then they've just got the advantage as far as being able to be critical of it. So uh, one of the things I'd say is to be more, in order to be more courageous and not compromise is you got to know your stuff and you have to be able to defend it. Um, I think another, another part of not compromising and being courageous is we have to embrace the reality of spiritual deception. We have to be able to see through the veil, if you will. I know it sounds kind of mystical, but you got to see through the veil and know that the person who's attacking your faith is oftentimes spiritually deceived and they can't come to the truth. And so we're looking at a society that's pushing all sorts of kind of sexual agenda. And 
uh, it's really out of compassion. You look through the veil and you go, they're blind and they're spiritually deceived. And it shouldn't be surprising to me that they, they want permission to do these things. And they may even be animated, animated by evil, evil ideas and forces. Yes. Like they, not only might they be deceived, but yeah. they've been deceived and then animated by things that are just straight up evil. So what you're talking about is they're influenced by demons. Yep. A demonic influence in their life. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't see a demon behind every tree, but I, I, I can when, when somebody's so resistant to the truth of the gospel based on whatever cultural topic you're talking about, when they're so antagonistic and resistant to it, I just see it as they're spiritually blind, they're spiritually deaf, their hearts are spiritually hardened. It's impossible for them to hear and see what I'm saying. So how much energy am I going to, you know, put into trying to convince them otherwise? Um, And basically what I've concluded is not a lot of energy. Uh, it's what Jesus called casting your pearls before swine. Don't don't waste your time expending something so valuable to somebody who has absolutely no appreciation for it. At least not on the argument. There may be another conversation about their need to to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but to talk about trans ideology, you're just gonna it's gonna be an impasse. So uh, to be more courageous and less compromising, I think you need to be aware of the spiritual um, forces at work and all of that. Um, I think another thing, and I, it's, I would say this is only the last few years for me, is to become more and more aware of an eternal perspective. Mm. And I see that from two, two, two perspectives an eternal perspective from two perspectives. It's a lot of uses. That is a lot of perspectives. It's like me and pernicious. <laughs> yes. It's a lot of perspectives. Okay, so the first one is, I will stand before a holy, righteous of God and mm-hmm. give an account for my life. That's an eternal perspective. So I best be diligent and disciplined in my stewardship of my life and my message because I'll have to answer to a holy God. The second perspective is God wins. God will honor his timeless word. Everything that I might say that's true, that's being you know rebutted and refused and resisted, I know that God in the end has the final word. And their lies, their deception will be shown for what it is. They will you know, reap the whirlwind. They will inherit the consequences of the choices that they've made in their, in their ignorance or their, you know, their resistance. And so I shouldn't have to sweat, you know, the, the current encounter. I, I don't have to be arrogant. I don't have to be dismissive. I can be very loving and kind, but at the same time, I don't have to worry about the fact that I lose because ultimately there's a day when God's truth will be revealed and every human being will see it for what it is. Yeah. And for some, that'll go well. And for others, it'll not go well. Some people that I've talked to, I I haven't necessarily told them this, but I might start. um, (laughs) Just essentially in my head, I'm like, all right, well, I don't know what God you're serving, but it ain't the God of the Bible. (laughs) And I've been saying that in my head. I might tell them out loud now, but uh, depending on who it is, just because, I don't know, there's an element of like 
straightforwardness that's helpful. But yeah, I completely agree. It's like, fine then. Yeah, you know, it's funny or interesting. Funny in an interesting kind of way. Mm -hmm. As I find myself in more and more encounters where what I have to say is contrary to what somebody else thinks or believes. I'm certainly trying to sharpen my uh, debate skills or my dialogue skills to be able to have the conversations. But really the spiritual edge for me is how to harness my attitude and my demeanor and my intentions toward them. Like, can I have a really dicey conversation about trans, about homosexuality, about whatever? Can, can I have a really dicey conversation about the person of Jesus or, you know, salvation through grace? Can I have a really dicey conversation and my heart truly be loving rather than defensive or insecure and panicky or, you know, trying to, you know, be mean or snarky with how I say stuff? Because... While I may stand before a holy and righteous God and know that I, I had the truth and I represented his word accurately, I still stand before a holy, righteous God and give an account for how yeah. I delivered that message. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the part that I'm really working through, there's a couple parts I'm really working through in my own spiritual journey right now, is, is how to have those conversations in a very loving, gracious kind of way. And for me, it's interesting. If that person is not a Christian, I'm much more inclined oh, yeah. to be gracious and kind and oh, patient. Oh, a thousand percent. If I'm with a, a person professing to be a Christian, it's harder for me to be. Oh, I'm way more <laughs> I, I'm way more on the attack. Yeah. yeah. Especially if they're in any form of leadership. Right. Then I'm like, no, no, no. You have no excuse. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Like, I'm still loving and kind, but I'm just like, okay, well, I know that these things we... You say this is true. Yeah. Well, this needs to be straightened out. But the other thing that I'm finding, and I had a very personal sort of catalyst to this part of my journey right now, is remaining courageous and confident to hold the line. Mm. Because I took it on the chin really hard for some things that I said. It had huge consequences to it, to me and to our church as a whole. And what I found myself doing was not saying what was on my heart, holding back. And so the part that I'm really wrestling with now, and God and I are in this conversation, and I'm trying to sort it all out, is I can't live on eggshells the rest of my life and I can't be silent just because now I'm afraid that somebody else will get mad and take their ball and go home. And, you know, I I don't have a number in my head specifically, but let's just say I have 10 more years of professional pastoral responsibility. I don't want to spend the last 10 years of my life being afraid to say what I believe God's laid on my heart. Especially when you're in those grouchy old man years. Yes, exactly. You got to really take advantage of those. I'm things. getting to be in those grouchy old man years, so I yeah, get permission. Yeah, baby. That's right. That's right. You can just, if you say something too bad, you can just wave it off as being grouchy old man. I'm just in a grouchy old man. <laughs> so, I, 
it was interesting right after the events happened that were so hard and hurtful there were sundays where i was talking and i said oh, i better not say that mm. i better not go there even though my heart was taking me there i'd say no i better not because that'll upset some people or you know that'll sound like the other thing that somebody else got pissed off about and and so i i was like oh no no this isn't healthy and so god and i have been doing a lot of dialogue about okay god i don't want to be a jerk and i don't want to be insensitive and i don't want to be you know the the loud mouth and the i, I don't want to be that guy but I don't want to be the silent one who simply steps back and watches the church get gobbled up in a world that's out against it. I, I'm not a prophet, I know that, but I am an ambassador of the gospel and I'm supposed to speak the truth in love. And I need the courage to do that even if the whole congregation walks. I need to, I need to speak the truth. I have two comments about that. One, I think, and I'm not—I don't know any specifics about the, what you're talking about. But my guess is that those people are going to leave or left anyways, and but then they still silenced you. So yeah. it's like, well, they're not even here, but they won, <laughs> right? What? And then two, my guess, because so few pastors are willing to say the hard truths that God will bring strong, loving, uh, truth-filled Christians to replace those individuals who repel the truth. That would be my guess. Hmm. Hmm. Just because there aren't very many places where those people feel at home, and so whenever they find one, they stick to it. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like I said, I'm in dialogue with God about how to sort this all out. And so the way I do that or part of the way I do that is I I listen to my heart and I listen to my mind because I believe that that's a point of where he speaks. And one of the impressions that became so vivid, um, I've heard this verse all my life. It was just a verse. It was just a thing. I mean, I understood it, but it just wasn't one I trafficked in. And it was the the, the phrase, and the truth will set you free. Mm. And I just thought, I think that's what God's saying to me is, Paul, just trust the truth. It'll set people free. It's not your job. I'll do that. I set people free, but they have to know the truth to be set free. And so as uncomfortable or as unpopular as it might be, and some people will get up and walk, you have to hold out that there's somebody or somebodies out there who are longing to be free. And the truth that you share with them is going to be a catalyst toward their freedom. That made me immediately think about the other verse that's very similar, uh, kind of, it relates to it, but... The word of God is like a double-edged sword yeah. to pierce the heart. Yeah. <clears throat> so God's given us this sharp double-edged sword, and we're over there dulling the blade. Yeah. What? What? No, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, and again, I, so much of it goes back to attitude and intention. 100%. Right? So like I said, I don't want to be the preacher that 
you know, just flying off the handle, going on diatribes and ranting and raving. Saying men are women. Men aren't women. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to be, there's a word for it. I don't, I don't want to be a jerk. Ah, uh, yeah, that's the word. I don't want to be a jerk. There's another word that, but we won't use it on the Civil Creek Conversations podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be a jerk. I want to be a loving, kind, gracious, compassionate person as an ambassador of Jesus Christ on the earth. But I want to tell the truth because the truth will set people free. And we just live in a society right now that many people don't want to hear the truth, and they interpret truth as being hateful or exclusive, and so they take exception with you. And I just have to be courageous enough to say, that's the risk that I run. But as a kind, gracious person, I will as gently as I can, but directly and clearly as I can, I will explain the truth of God's word to people and let them you know, make their decisions. And if that comes back and you know, I take it on the chin for it, I have to be willing to do that because followers of Christ have been doing that for centuries. They've been taking it on the chin. That's part of the calling that comes with speaking the truth in love. And so I'm just... I'm there right now for the first time in 35 years of ministry more than I have ever been. I don't know that I've ever been in a position of having to decide in the moment how much do I say here for risk of. Because the pushback is just becoming stronger and stronger, even in Christian circles. Well, I say let them push. I wouldn't expect anything less from you, White. I'll be right behind you, boss. <laughs> I'll have your back. You're a good man. I appreciate that. Well, I think this was good. I yeah. hope that people listening uh, can find some type of solace and encouragement to figure out what it is that you think and why. What's the? I think it's First Peter. Have an answer to, for the hope that you claim. Yeah. Um, and these hard truths are hope because <clears throat> to not have a foundation to rest your life on. It's a very hopeless area. And that's what we see a lot in society is just hopelessness because they don't know any direction they're going. They have nothing to stand on. Um, so, so anyways, I hope that this was helpful to folks. Yeah, well, thanks for having it. Of course. I enjoyed it. We'll uh, see everybody next time. We hope you enjoyed this presentation of Cibolo Creek Community Church. If you did, please consider supporting the ministry of our church. Your donations make a difference. To check out more resources or to share a gift, please visit us at CibeloCreek.com. Thanks for listening.